0: Morning. wonder what comes to mind when you think of freedom. Maybe you think about skipping through an idyllic field of wildflowers or swimming in the sea beside an empty beach. If you're a parent of young children, um, you might think about the freedom of leaving the house alone, unencumbered by car seats or spare nappies. Maybe you hear Mel Gibson's battle cry as, as William Wallace, they might take our lives but they'll never take our freedom. You'll notice I didn't even try to do the accent there. Uh, Maybe you think of the Second World War, which is often evoked as a sacrifice of those who fought to defend our freedoms. Well, over the last few months, our freedom has been restricted in lots of different ways. We've had new laws governing where people can go and when, how and where people work, who they can visit. Access to food and different essential items has been restricted at times. We wonder whether future history students will talk about the great toilet roll crisis of 2020. Um, and we've also had restrictions on different forms of human interaction. So we no longer shake hands or hug, but we stay two metres away, safe behind a perspex screen, a layer of hand sanitizer, a mask. And many of us have mourned lots of these small freedoms that we previously took for granted. And at times we have struggled to adjust to our newly constrained world. But while these restrictions have affected all of us on an individual level, many of us have also noticed situations around the world which seem to threaten freedom at a societal level. Freedom of movement has been in the news a lot after Brexit. In America and elsewhere, there have been lots of incidents and protests that have highlighted systemic injustice and loss of freedom for people of colour. You might have seen in the news that concern is growing about the use of re-education and forced labour camps targeting the Uyghur Muslim minority in China, which have been compared to the concentration camps of the Second World War. Meanwhile, If you're on social media, cancel culture is seen as threatening freedom of speech and social media sites are increasingly acting to delete posts or warn us when the information shared is thought to be misleading or offensive. All that sounds really quite depressing so I think it's not surprising that there's been lots of debate and discussion about freedom recently. You'll be glad to know that I'm not going to channel Stephen Nolan. Um, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to get into any of the specific issues that people have been so vehemently discussing. But I've noticed that the debate often seems to come down to the tension between personal freedom and abiding by the rules of society, or personal freedom and the collective good. Of course, this isn't a new problem. It goes all the way back to the start of the Bible and has been written about by people much smarter than me, philosophers and politicians and so on. But as I've read and thought about freedom over the last few months, I've been struck by the idea that our ideas about freedom, and particularly personal freedom, are often taken from recent history rather than from the Bible. In January 1941, President Roosevelt delivered his State of the Union Address, which later became known as the Four-Freedom Speech. In it, he argued that a secure modern world should be founded on four freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of every person to worship God, freedom from want, freedom from fear. And these ideas spread throughout the second half of the 20th century. His wife, Eleanor, is credited with incorporating them into what became the UN Declaration of Human Rights, So that even for us, sitting here in cool rain, decades after FDR's speech, miles away from America, and possibly with no interest in history, they may summarise what we think of when we think of freedom. And at first, his aspirations seem helpful and positive. We probably agree with all or most of them. And I believe that in their simplest form, they may offer a glimpse of what will one day come in the new heaven and the new earth, when every knee will bow in worship, when there'll be no sickness, no hunger and no tears. However, once we start to examine them more closely, I think it becomes a bit more complicated. Does everyone have the right to speak freely? What if it's offensive or dangerous or incites violence? Does freedom of of religion extend to those who are the minority in a culture or whose beliefs endanger others? Do I really have the right to not want for anything? I also noticed that these freedoms don't reflect the experience of pretty much anybody in the Bible. Not David who spent months in fear hiding in caves. Not Daniel, whose freedom to worship God was constrained. Not Esther, who risked her life to speak for her people. Not the people of Israel in Jeremiah's time, who lived in captivity. Not Mary, who was criticised by the religious leaders for the way she chose to worship Jesus. And not Paul, who was in prison for preaching the gospel. So I decided to look at what the Bible does say about freedom and at the experiences of some of these people whose freedom was restricted. Obviously this is a huge topic, but don't worry, I plan to stick to 20 minutes-ish, and I hope that this quick overview um, will challenge and encourage you, as it has me, to have a fuller understanding of biblical freedom. So let's begin by thinking about the nature of God. From the account of creation in Genesis onwards, God acts freely to create, to establish laws, to bless and to punish both individuals and nations. As Psalm 115 puts it, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. And reading the Psalms and other Old Testament books, we really frequently see comparisons of God's freedom with the idols that others worship. Psalm 15 describes them as made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. So these false gods are powerless lumps of metal with new agency. The psalmist here seems to be connecting God's power with his freedom and establishes both of them as crucial aspects of God's character. I think that the last few months have also shown how crucial freedom is in our lives too. And of course, we're made for freedom. God chose to make humans free. We have the freedom to believe in him or not, to follow his ways or not, to love and serve him or not. If God had somehow programmed me to make only good choices, I wouldn't be truly free to love and serve him. Of course, if I live by myself on some island remote from others, yet mysteriously well-stocked with all the food and clothes and worship music and Bibles and books that I needed, it might be easier to exercise the freedom that God has given me. But I don't. We live in community with others in a fallen world and we're free to make choices, difficult as they may be. Over the centuries, some have tried to remove themselves from the world to better focus on God. As a teenager, I was bizarrely fascinated by the stylites that I learned about in R.E., like Simeon, who in the 5th century lived on a pillar outside what is now modern-day Aleppo for 37 years. Others have sought to limit their own and others' freedom out of a sincere desire to pursue purity. In the 17th century, John Milton, a Puritan himself, wrote a pamphlet arguing about the censorship policies of the Puritan faction that he was part of in Parliament who wanted to defend biblical truth by banning books that they deemed inappropriate. He didn't agree with what they were proposing. Karen Swallow pryor writes about the significance of Milton's work in her memoir, Booked, um, in a way which strikes me as really relevant um, almost 400 years later. So if you'll indulge me with my bizarre fascination with um, 17th century writers, I'd like to read the section where she summarises his argument. The essence of Milton's argument is that truth is stronger than falsehood. Falsehood prevails through the suppression of countering ideas, but truth triumphs in a free and open exchange that allows truth to shine. The power of truth lies not in abstract propositions, but in the understanding and willful application of truth by living, breathing persons, which can only occur in the context of liberty. Indeed for Milton, this necessary freedom is seen in the character of God. For God is not, Milton argues, one to captivate his children under a perpetual childhood of prescription, but rather God expects us to exercise reason, wisdom and virtue. What wisdom can there be to choose without knowledge of evil, asks Milton. What praise for a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed that never sallies out and seeks his adversary, but slinks out of the race where that immortal garland is to be run for. Those who imagine to remove sin by removing the nature of sin have a a poor understanding of human nature and the human condition, argues Milton. I find that hugely challenging. Milton develops his argument by discussing the examples of Paul and Daniel, two biblical heroes who were steeped in knowledge and understanding of the pagan cultures of their times, but who showed the power of the true God by exercising reason, wisdom and virtue. And that challenges me that while we might think it would be easier or safer or better to limit the expression of ideas that are not biblical, as Milton argues to do so actually limits truth and the freedom we were created to have. So if we acknowledge that we live in a world full of competing ideas and have the freedom to make many decisions, how can the Bible help us exercise reason, wisdom and virtue as we go about our daily lives? Firstly, while we are free to choose how to act, God has given us his law. The word law conjures ideas of restrictions. We probably think of a big list of things we can't do. And this may particularly be the case when we read the multitude of laws contained in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, for example. Yet, in Psalm 119, verses 43 to 45, we read, Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. So for the psalmist, following God's laws allows him to live freely. This idea is repeated in the New Testament by James. In James 1, to 25, James exhorts the early church to not just listen to, but act on God's law he describes as the perfect law which gives freedom. This is perhaps a surprising description. We definitely don't hear of perfect human laws. It seems like a paradox. How can restrictions bring freedom? Yet we know this to be true in daily life. The restrictions of speed limits and seat belts, which we generally all follow, give us the freedom to drive safely wherever we go. Children, and all of us really, flourish when given boundaries. We're free to roam, explore, choose what to do, within the parameters of God's law. It's important to note a couple of things about this relationship between law and freedom. As we know, for the Jewish people, the Levitical laws intended to give freedom were added onto and became burdensome. Some of them were rooted in the time and place they were first given and may have been intended to protect the Israelites. Perhaps the law about eating shellfish can be seen in this light. Interpreting all those Old Testament laws goes way beyond my scope today. And I also think the knots we tie ourselves into at times, trying to do so, point to an important truth. Like pretty much everything else created by God, what was meant for good and for freedom can be subverted by people to become the opposite. Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount that I do not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. And from this and from his promise to the disciples in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus' three years of ministry on earth can be characterised by freedom. At times, he carefully adhered to the rules and law of the Torah, and at other times, he disregarded the letter of the law to set people free from illness, society's judgement, or to reveal the ways that the law had been corrupted. We know that Jesus' death also set us free from the burden of earning righteousness through following the law, yet the principle that following God's law brings freedom remains. The early church grappled with his paradox, just as we often do, and in Paul's letters we see him advising them, for example in 1 Corinthians 10 and Galatians 2, to worry less about rigid adherence to the Jewish laws around food and circumcision, and more about seeking the good of others. In the Galatians passage, Paul warns about the false believers who had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. In Romans 6, he warns about the opposite problem interpreting freedom in Christ to mean that we can ignore the law and go on sitting confident of God's grace. Galatians in particular is full of so many references to our freedom in Christ, yet in all of his letters Paul is really careful to remind his readers that personal freedom, which, which we have, should not be at the expense of others. In Galatians 5 he characterises life in the Spirit by describing the fruit of the Spirit, all of which are mainly evident as we live and relate to others. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In this, Paul's following Jesus' example. As when asked by the Pharisees what the most important commandment was, Jesus gave the textbook or Sunday school answer found in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like this one. And it is, love others as much as you love yourself. All the law of Moses and the books of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And this is where I find the biblical connection between the law and freedom most challenging. As I make choices every day, are my choices following the law of loving God and loving others? As lockdown is relaxed and we enjoy the freedom to move around our town to meet up to shop, are my choices following the law of loving God and loving others? I thought the recent email from our elders did a great job of encouraging us to remember that we all have different attitudes and experiences around lockdown and returning to normal life, but our choices and the way we articulate them can't just be about ourselves if we're truly loving others. As I enjoy the freedom to express my opinions about things and perhaps disagree with others in conversation and in social media, does the way I do that, follow the law of loving God and loving others. I know that I'm guilty of inwardly rolling my eyes at times at things that I read or hear and I suspect I'm not the only one. I'm challenged to consider how we can truly love others in a time when discussion is so often polarised. As I enjoy the freedom to choose what to eat, what clothes to buy, what companies to support with my money, what books to read and to teach to my pupils, do my choices follow the law of loving God and loving others? this last point is something that I've thought about a lot in my work as an English teacher. And that leads me to a second way the Bible can help us exercise reason, wisdom and virtue as we live freely. Running through the whole Bible, we see a really important principle, that God's freedom is for everyone. The coming of God's kingdom is particularly characterised by freedom for those who are oppressed. Through much of the Old Testament, God is on the side of the underdog. He frees the Israelites from slavery He chooses David the shepherd boy as king. He listens to the barren Hannah longing for a child. He uses nameless servants and bold prophets who kids laugh at to bring his message. He gives the prostitute Rahab and the foreigner Ruth a place in the genealogy of Jesus. There is so much suffering and violence and injustice in the Old Testament yet there is always a reminder of God's goodness and the freedom that he intends for his people. There is always the promise of Jesus who in Luke's gospel begins his public ministry by declaring that he is the fulfilment of the words of Isaiah 61. The the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So biblical freedom then isn't just about personal freedom. It doesn't just mean freedom for me. It's freedom for the poor, those in prison, those suffering and oppressed, those in despair, those who grieve. We know all this. And yet I was challenged recently, we often read the Bible with faulty theology. I've referred to lots of Old Testament figures already this morning and I'm guessing that some of you like me grew up admiring many of them as heroes of faith. A few months ago I read an article by American writer Erna Kim Hackett entitled Why I Stopped Talking About Racial Reconciliation and Started Talking About White Supremacy. The whole article is very challenging but I want to pick out just one paragraph where she addresses what she sees as a common problem in the American church which I felt also applied to me. White Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the women anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For the citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when it is studying scripture, it is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. So if biblical freedom means freedom for the poor, the widows, the oppressed, the prisoners, the sick, the blind, those who mourn, Then I challenge all of us to begin by acknowledging our place in the story. I want to be really careful in how I say this, because I'm aware that I am enormously privileged. I am a white, European, middle-class, middle-aged, well-educated woman. Most of those things make it easier for me to speak up, to have my say, to be listened to. I'm struck by the thought that even being asked to speak in church like this on a Sunday morning in some ways reflects the privilege that I enjoy. I'm very aware that not everyone shares this privilege, but can I gently ask you to consider your place in the story? I know that the concept of white privilege, for example, is uncomfortable and rejected by some who feel that their lives are anything but privileged. But I don't think the Bible allows us to make that excuse. Time and time again in the Bible, God calls both those who have power and those who are oppressed in some way to help others most in need. Esther, for example, had a relatively privileged position, but she was also living with very limited freedom when she acted to expose Haman's plot to kill the Jews. We may not be able to stop the horrendous treatment of the Uyghur people in China, or the racism encountered by too many people here and elsewhere, or the oppression of women in Afghanistan and South Sudan. But we, like Esther, can act for their freedom by exercising biblical reason, wisdom, and virtue through our freedom to speak pray, shop, choose whose voices we read and listen to and share. I feel this is a particular challenge for our time. Not just as we face those bigger global issues that I mentioned, but because as our country works to recover from lockdown, it would be really easy to think only of ourselves or those who society deems to be important or vital to our economy. From tomorrow we're being encouraged to boost the economy by enjoying the newly restored freedom to eat out, which is great but not exactly a hardship for most of us. So let's also pray and act for God's freedom for those who are now burdened by debt, for the children who weren't able to do any schoolwork since March, for those struggling with isolation and loneliness, those who are ill, those who are burdened by fear and anxiety. Finally, the Bible shows us that God's people live in freedom, even when their circumstances enslave or imprison them. Daniel worshipped God despite the laws of the time and the lions surrounding him. Jeremiah instructed the Israelites living in captivity in Babylon to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So many of Paul's letters begin by reminding his readers that Paul is writing in chains, and yet he continues to worship God. In 1 Peter 2, Peter encourages the early churches to live freely while still under the Roman Empire. They are to submit to every human authority... And by doing good, silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. While we're not literally in chains, all of us may feel imprisoned by circumstances at different times. For some, the recent restrictions have been our first experience of losing freedom, while others may live with restrictions every day because of ill health, family circumstances, a difficult relationship, the demands of a job, the prejudice of others where we live. But Galatians 5.1 reminds us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So let's finish by focusing on the freedom that comes from God in every circumstance of our life. Having considered what the Bible says about freedom, these then are my alternatives to FDR's four freedoms. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, Paul writes that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What an amazing reminder of the reality of our salvation and the freedom that comes with life in the Spirit, the Spirit who convicts, moves, changes and transforms us. So our first freedom is that we have the freedom to approach God and become his children, to see his glory for ourselves and to be transformed into his image, which as we saw earlier, is a nature characterised by true freedom. Secondly, we have the freedom to live by God's law, which itself brings freedom. No matter what laws are passed, how hurt or aggrieved we feel, or what difficult person or circumstance we have to deal with, we are free to love God and others, to choose joy and kindness, patience, faithfulness and self-control. I find Sam's really helpful in this as David and the other writers don't shy away from bringing their confusion or anger or lament at their circumstances before God, but there's always a sense of freedom, As they choose to trust God and follow his ways. Thirdly, we have the hope of freedom from oppression for ourselves and for others, which challenges us to pray and act in the spirit from a place of humility, peace, gentleness and self-control rather than privilege. Finally, we have the promise of freedom from nature's decay. Coronavirus like previous pandemics has caused many people to reflect on the precarious nature of humanity In just a few months, one disease has paused our normal routines and killed hundreds of thousands of people. It's understandable that many people are questioning how they live and what's really important. But we do not live as those who have no hope. The narrative arc of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, shows us a world created for God's glory, destroyed by sin, but destined for redemption. In Romans 8.21, we read that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We are God's children. So let's live in his kingdom. Let's pursue his freedom rather than the freedoms of, his, of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom you have called us to, for the laws you've given to guide us and lead us into a life of true freedom. We confess the ways we have misused that freedom, choosing to prize our own comforts or beliefs Above your call to love you and love others. We praise you that you are the God who sets the captives free, who brings light in the darkness and restores hope to those who are hopeless. As we live and work in this community and in this world, show us the ways we can bring your freedom to those who are oppressed by illness, poverty and prejudice. We pray that through your spirit, many around us would see you and walk into a life of true freedom. Amen.